Welcome to episode one of the Rhine Reef podcast. This is my conversation with Milagros Santa Maria or Fortunata on Twitter. We cover a lot of legal topics, but nothing said is legal or financial advice. Enjoy the show. Thanks for making the time to, to join me here today. And I was wondering if maybe you could just introduce yourself and, and how you got into crypto and, and law. Absolutely. Hello, Ryan, and thank you for having me. My name is Milagro Santa Maria. My Twitter handle or my crypto name to call like that is Fortunata. Actually, I have a cute story on it. But long story short, I'm a lawyer. I work in crypto legal consultancy and I work for a company called Tokenize IT, where we provide legal fintech solutions and Web3 for companies, governments and NGOs. That's uh, what I do. The company is from Latin America and I'm working a little bit more on the business development in Europe so we can expand to as well Asia and Middle East. So my brand or my part of what I do has mostly to do with the legal structuring and the requirements for Web3 companies and projects to be compliant. Great. And uh, so what is the story behind your .eth name? Behind Fortunata? Well, yes. the story behind it is that originally I am from Argentina, reason why you might find a little bit of an accent when I speak, and I'm living in Lisbon right now, which is a pretty good place to be at if you're into technologies and Web3, you, you guys might know. And when I was a kid, my dad has always been very much into Greek mythology and Roman history, and he would constantly quote in Latin this part of La Eneada by Virgilio, where he would say, Audentes fortuna yubat, which means the goddess of fortune favors the bold. So whenever I would have to make a big decision like leaving Argentina and starting over from scratch, I felt that it was a good approach to life and adventures. So I also believe that language constitutes in a very conscious and subconscious way. So I said, okay, let's make it fortunata for the crypto space and hope for the, way, for the best while we keep working. That's a great story. So um, when it comes to DAOs, there's there's lots of questions that pop into my mind legally, but what are some things that you deal with um, when it comes to DAOs and legal questions? Well, it comes in different aspects because uh, the people that or the projects that approach the firm either come only as an idea or as an already set DAO with members and a treasury. So usually with both cases, the first question is which jurisdiction should I pick or what legal wrapper should my DAO have to be compliant and not to have problems with regulators? That's the main question that we get. Should we actually find a legal wrapper? Which one should it be and what jurisdiction? And that's from where we start working. Can you explain a bit what you mean by legal wrapper? Well, the thing about DAOs is that we know or we're mostly talking about entities that live on the blockchain, a group of people that have a share, that are a community, that have a shared patrimony or treasury that's digital and that have a token that provides them with membership and also to um, operate the governance, right? So when I talk about a legal wrapper, I talk about the utilization of a real life or a physical world because both worlds are real to go like that entity to help them do two things mostly the execution of off-chain operations as well that that would also come with a declaration and payment of taxes and as well limited liability for members 
So when I'm talking about a legal wrapper, I'm talking about finding a legal structure or entity in the physical world in a specific jurisdiction to help DAOs achieve or do these things. I'm talking about the off-chain operations as well as limited liability for the members. And for people that aren't familiar with legal terminology, it can be a bit daunting sometimes um, mm -hmm. looking at the options. Something that sort of jumped out to me is uh, LexDAO. They're an unincorporated nonprofit association, which I think sounds kind of funny, um, but maybe you could explain what, it, that's a legal wrapper, correct? Exactly, that's a legal wrapper. Well, uh, in that case, uh, oh, sorry, continue. Yeah, so, so I was just wondering why choose to go with that kind of legal wrapper versus other kind of legal wrappers? Okay, I understand the question. The thing about it is that the reason why an unincorporated um, association might be chosen in the U.S. goes beyond DAOs in general in the sense that there are many things you bear into account when you choose a jurisdiction for your legal wrapper. It has to do with what's the nationality of the founding members, where the control of the DAO is going to come from, what's the, where is it going to operate, and what jurisdictions are the activities going to affect. So if we're, for example, if you and me or you and I are here in Portugal or if we're actually in Argentina and just want to have a DAO that has a, that's a nonprofit and wants to be a collector DAO, for example, then maybe we wouldn't even consider thinking about the U.S. if all of our members or potential users are nothing or have nothing to do with the U.S. So in this case, if we're talking about members who are from a particular jurisdiction and whose activities are going to affect that jurisdiction itself, then we might think, uh, better on what countries to, to pick the legal wrapper or to be mindful about. That's uh, like the first part to think. If uh, most of our operations are going to have to do with the U.S. or we're going to create profit or we're going to have most of the members in the U.S., then it could be more of an explanation of why to choose it. And then also comes the questions of for-profit, non-profit, member distribution, and then the different options that you can find. And Anecdotally, it, it seems like many people that are thinking of using a legal wrapper for their DAO, they, they tend to think of or go with the jurisdiction they're most familiar with. How do you think someone should think about that in terms of weighing where they actually um, sort of associate themselves with? Well, of course, if we're talking about most members from the U.S. or most members from a certain period in Europe or in South America, we might think about choosing this ourselves. But there are also other options for DAOs whenever they're trying to find a legal wrapper. And this also has to do with the level of regulation of the jurisdictions that we're looking at. To give you an example, if we think about Liechtenstein or we're thinking about Switzerland, we're going to be talking about the jurisdictions that have most legal certainty for both parts on Web3 projects. Because of this, of having um, regulatory certainty on what we act and how and what we do and how we do it, is that both parts know that whenever a problem or an issue arises, we know exactly how the law is going to treat it and what protocols or procedures we should do. On the other hand, if we're thinking mostly about the USA, we can notice a lot of ambiguity on how 
crypto is treated, how tokens are considered, and how regulations are going to continue in the future. Right now, there's this debate between the SEC and CFTC on what's going to be the entity that actually has regulation jurisdiction, on not regulation, but jurisdiction on top of these kind of matters, which causes a lot of the drama to go like that or the worries of regulation by enforcement, like is happening right now with Okidao or with different cases, like what's happening as well with the Coinbase case. So when we think about where the members are from or where we're going to have our activities or what jurisdiction is going to be affected, it's also good to consider more than one if we're not binding to the U.S. And with the, the Okidao case, um, I'm not super familiar with exactly what happened, but in my mind, um, there's an issue that comes up where if, if a DAO does something that's illegal, who's responsible? Exactly. That's one of the main reasons of why DAOs or founders or members think about or consider finding a legal robber. Because if a DAO, therefore this group of people that have the same purpose and therefore as a community work forward towards this purpose, don't find the legal rapper, therefore this entity that would be responsible in case of any civil or penal problem, then any member could have joint individual responsibility for whatever happens and be sued to take over the problem. So that's why a legal rapper is consider or thought to be important beyond of the fact of just being able to sign contracts and open a regular bank account, but to give protection to the members so they're not found to have joint responsibility whenever a problem arises on anything. So if someone is thinking about joining a DAO, do you think that it's important to figure out what kind of legal wrapper they're using or if they have one? Absolutely. It's like whenever you're finding, whenever you want to put your money or your crypto on an exchange, you kind of want to know if they're incorporated or not, if they have a license or not. Because in the case of anything bad happens, you're going to want to know who to actually address. So if you're going to join a DAO, it's important to know if they have a legal structure and if they don't, if they're planning to have one. Because in the case of Wukidao, is that it's the first time that a DAO is being sued even though they don't have a legal wrapper and thought to be uh, an unincorporated association, which would mean that the members actually have joint responsibility. And then this big thing or this big debate opens because it could become a precedent on what is needed to actually be thought to be part of this unincorporated association or general partnership or like it's just voting on anything enough to be thought to be part of this. It's just being member of it enough. What happens if I was only airdropped and I didn't actually uh, buy the token or actually got it as a contribution for my work? So there's a lot of gray areas or questions that are going to be answered very soon because it's law and regulation a little bit in the making. And if someone wants to create a DAO, what, what kind of legal questions should they be thinking about? Well, I think that the way that I would start thinking is what would be the purpose of the DAO? What kind of DAO is it going to be? Why are people getting together and putting their digital patrimony or treasury together to get to? As well, what's the purpose of the DAO? What kind of DAO do they want to be? Does it want to be a for-profit or a non-profit in case it wants to be a 
for profit, do they want to do member distribution or not? And from that moment on, understand as well who are the members as well as the founders, what's the targets of users and consumers, the kind of activities that they're going to perform. And if there's really going to be a DAO in the sense of decentralization and therefore not have one only group of people, one people doing the whole administration or control, or do they actually have a real roadmap towards decentralization? Those are the first question that I would think. And after that, start considering the different jurisdictions and the entities that each jurisdiction can actually give us, bearing into account as well the regulations that the jurisdictions have on the matter. Because we want in the end for both the creators and the users and contributors or consumers to feel safe. So ideally, the, the this person or group of people should have things thought out enough to sort of get the legal wrapper and, and go and do what they want to do. But um, sometimes the world's a, a little more complicated. I think um, MoonDAO started out, they wanted to raise money to buy a moon rock, and now they're buying tickets to send people to outer space, um, and they're branching into di different sort of things. So I was wondering, how difficult is it if you get a legal wrapper and then you want to sort of totally change your project to something else. And maybe you realize that, for example, maybe you incorporated in Wyoming and then you realize actually, you know, Switzerland's a better fit. What does that whole process look like? It can always happen. You can start in a way and if you think that it doesn't work through, you can then create another entity and have the entity buy the other one or become a main shareholder of the other one. It can still be done. I believe that beyond of the fact of the possibility of escalating or growing, it's important that from the start, or at least when you see that your treasury or your funds might grow, you start to, to touch other people's money to have this covered. Because I know it's said that legal fees can be quite tough, especially in this matter, because it's such a niche field that prices go up. It's a lot more expensive to fix a problem and hire someone to fix a legal problem than it is to actually try to prevent it from the beginning from a solo structure. So if you happen to start with a smaller kind of entity or one that doesn't cover all your needs at the beginning, which is not ideal, of course, and that's why legal services or legal consulting is always useful, you can always have a broader or bigger, more scalable entity take over the other one or as a second option. And you you touched upon this a little bit, but the the nature of a project being centralized versus decentralized. Um, recently, we've seen the FTX sort of debacle, um, which was a centralized project. And we've seen many projects in the past, like Celsius, et cetera. Um, how do you think about the law when it comes to centralized versus decentralized projects? I believe that sadly, there's a lot of people that take advantage of the buzzwords in the ecosystem and the fact that most people that interact with it are not fully educated or knowledgeable on the matter. So, on the matter. so saying that something is a DeFi when it's really a CeFi, it's a big problem because they are not so different to the existing financial and banking institutions with the difference that they are not as regulated and therefore not as safe for people who interact with them. So saying that something is DeFi when it's DeFi is the first big problem because in the end they are doing whatever they want with your money and after if something bad happens it's a lot harder to complain to them. 
than it would be with a regular institution. That's why whenever I would talk to clients or even friends who want to start investing or using an exchange in crypto, I'd rather start saying on check out if the exchange is actually registered somewhere, if they have a license or how long they've been actually functioning. That's why, for example, I feel a lot safer with Kraken in the US because it's one of, I think it was the first actually exchange that was compliant with the different banking regulations so they could be on point on whatever happens. So what's happening with FTX, sadly, I believe is a crypto exchange that would call themselves something that they're not and now being a big scandal that it gets to the point that it's not funny, but it becomes hardly, hardly believable that this got to happen. I do believe as well that because of the fact that things are so new and this is a space that goes so fast is that sometimes regulation and well-prepared and knowledgeable projects need to go through this stones and obstacles to grow in a healthy way. Like it happened before in the crypto winter of 2017 and 18, where 99%, 95% of it was only smoke and the good ones stayed. And now we know how to identify projects and tokens that are well-made and actually have a backup and some substance. And there's lots of information that continues to come out and lots of speculation about what's going to happen with FTX, but how do you think this is going to affect the law moving forward? Some people have speculated that the U.S. is kind of going to isolate itself legally from sort of the rest, and and maybe it's going to make things a bit more difficult for sort of American citizens to to get involved with uh, DAOs and other kinds of projects. But what do you think about that? I think that in the middle and long term, I could not imagine the U.S. closing themselves mostly or totally into this ecosystem or industry because in the end they would be losing money. I do believe that it might take them longer to create illegal legal standards or legal regulations that can be both favorable for innovation and as well for investment. But I don't believe they're going to fully close outdoors. I believe it's going to take them longer and therefore that's going to make them both lose money and have more people get ripped off to call it like that because they're not giving the safety that they could if they had inclusive and innovative regulation on the matter. And right now there's lots of options for sort of creating legal wrappers in, in jurisdictions, but do you see sort of a, a clear winner in terms of just by sheer numbers of people that are interested in a particular spot because they're providing maybe a slightly better um, legal framework? And, and how do you see this sort of evolving over time, especially places like Portugal? A, a lot of people in the crypto space seem to gravitate towards Portugal. And mm -hmm. it, in my mind, at least, it seems like it wouldn't take too much to kind of um, sway things in a particular way where maybe that becomes a, a kind of hub. I mean, it already is a kind of hub, but what, more specifically about the sort of like legal frameworks that are available. Well, 
thinking about the ones that are available right now and bearing into account the regulations still in the making and in Europe Mika just came out and there's still this Gaffey travel rule about to come out that we don't really know I would start saying that because of the ambiguity that we find in the US with who is going to be the enforcer are we going to be talking about the SEC or CFTC and what's like crypto regulation going to be like in the future if founders or main activity point is not from the US I would right now try to stay away from it from it for the moment because of this ambiguity that you never know how it could backfire. I would consider how things are evolving in Europe in the sense that if you have or the project have a, has a budget to go for Switzerland or Liechtenstein on the structures that they may provide in Liechtenstein, for example, as a foundation or as a cooperative, or in Liechtenstein as a Swiss association, for example, I would bear them into account because it's this legal certainty what makes projects be fruitful and solid from the beginning. The thing about them is that they are pricier than the other options. Still, in the rest of Europe, because of Mika and the fact that they rule on utility tokens as well as stable coins and the white papers of these Web3 projects that they're going to have to deliver, is that a lot of it more certainty can be put into the projects and therefore a lot more money could go into them. It could be an example of something that could be used. I'm currently staying in Portugal and we're analyzing the possibility of using civil associations as legal wrappers for DAOs because they don't really require member lists and would help for the flexibility and the fungibility of the DAO tokens for an easier adaptation to the concept itself of decentralized autonomous organization, for example. But if you think about other options, for example, uh, Cayman Islands and the foundation companies are something that are very much used right now, like, like the AP3, as well as the ENS Foundation is also in Cayman Islands. The bad thing about them is reputation-wise on how they are seen by other banks and countries because of well, many negative things that have to do with reputation with Cayman Islands and BBI too. So there are many things to consider and you have different jurisdictions to bear into account as well as we said before with the nationality of the members, the purpose of the DAO and how much they're willing to spend at the beginning on the legal structure or the legal wrapper that they could find. In this sense, regulation is not bad. Finding a country that has regulation on the matter does not mean necessarily is restrictive it might mean that they provide a safe harbor for both creators and innovators and the users that want to actually make part of it to protect both. And if not, Martian Islands have also an, a DAO LLC uh, bill that came out in February this year that's quite interesting that can also be considered always, yeah, as well, in relation to whatever the, the founders are from and where the operations of the DAO would actually take place. Can, can you explain what a civil association is? A civil association? Well, in Portugal, it's called Association Civile. It's a group of people that get together for a common purpose and then they are non-profit. That would be the short explanation of what a civil association in Portugal works for, compliant to the rules here in Portugal. Always okay with the different regulations that have to do with common order and the like. And this isn't exactly a legal question, but in my mind, sort of countries and jurisdictions seem to have a lot of opportunity to attract these kinds of projects. So you were saying maybe the Cayman Islands doesn't have the best reputation. Um, how, how do you think jurisdictions can sort of overcome that and maybe 
sort of attract more people and get around sort of things that have happened in the past if if there is anything or maybe it's just time in the sense that jurisdictions like bvi or Cayman island or panama win the relation on the view that the rest of the world have with them yeah i would say having more regulation or clearer terms on how they handle taxes and disclosure of members on the companies that they got but at the same time, that would actually maybe make them lose, and I'm doing against the charm of why people go and put money over there. Because when you go to Cayman Islands, if you're trying to think about it as a legal wrapper for your DAO, they have foundation company companies that work a little bit like unincorporated trusts. That's a way of creating a foundation that is kind of without shareholders in the sense that the names are not there. And it's similar to a trust in the sense that you have a director or board of directors that actually execute the orders of what the DAO members would say with the supervisor there's another entity that makes sure that the director or directors do what the DAO members say and that they're both compliant as well with the norms of the Cayman Islands. So you can find a very comfortable way or so far one of the most comfortable ways for DAOs to touch ground, I'm doing gimmicks again, uh, but with the danger or the fact that they can be badly seen by European banks or regulators or entities as well, for example. And are you familiar with the idea of a uh, network state? Network state, uh, that rings a bell actually. So there's there's a few projects um, and there's quite a spectrum, but for example, there's CityDAO, which is uh, incorporated in Wyoming with a DAO law there. And then, <laughs> so I'd say they're kind of on the far end of one spectrum from the the legal wrapper point of view and then on the other side there's a project called nation three where they kind of don't <laughs> they don't want to get involved legally um at least to my knowledge at to this point and they their so their goal is to instead of getting recognized from uh, a traditional uh nation state they just want to sort of become popular enough or successful enough where other nation states start to recognize them. Um, so there's there's just a lot going on in the space. Um, curious to to see what you think. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are again with the whole concept. I am not specifically familiar with Nation 3, but I am familiar with this doctrine that comes from Switzerland that actually says that the internet can be also seen as a different sovereign jurisdiction that needs to be recognized as a sovereign jurisdiction of any other country, which I find it fascinating, especially what what is to come with the metaverse and DAOs that are going to also well relate to the metaverse. So I think that we never know because this is... Or we are in front of a reality that's no longer something that is common and what's the future, but it's what is happening right now. And we're going to have to find solution and paths to live with them and solutions and paths that we have never had to worry about before. So the idea or the possibility of having regular traditional states having to recognize a different sovereign jurisdiction that goes beyond just physical land, I don't believe it's that crazy. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm curious because you've already touched upon all these different types of jur- jurisdictions from Switzerland, Cayman Islands, Portugal, United States. How do you um, 
sort of stay up to date with so much sort of information? Do you have a system for sort of exploring the the laws of these jurisdictions or, or how does that happen? I don't sleep. No, it's a joke. <laughs> so, no, we have a team at, at the at the company. Thankfully, tokenize IT, we're a good number of lawyers. So by bi-weekly and then as well once a month we get together and we have different parts of the world where we work mostly on our research as well as jurisdictions and service providers so we try to stay up to date constantly on why we interesting on uh, bills for new legislations or projects that seem interesting and then we need to update it as well for our clients in case it could be interesting for them for example a few months ago we had a potential client by then and so client now that was thinking about where they could find a legal rubber for their DAO and the new law on Panama and crypto asset had just came out and only now we realize that the development of the regulations as well as the entities of the Panamanian government are really ready to make it happen and we're also analyzing the possibility of not only use, utilizing the company entities that they got but use as well creating a new way of giving a legal rapper to a, uh, to a DAO through a fideicomiso, which is like saying trust. A fideicomiso is like the Latin cousin of trusts, and trust can also be used for legal rappers for DAOs. So it's also in the making, and that's what we do as a team, trying to create new solutions that are at the same time complying to the regulations that we see. And with this whole space being so new, if someone is is interested in getting into sort of the crypto law space, what would you tell them? Well, I would tell them that they need to start with the basics on the sense that there's a really good book, not specifically on law, by Sherman Voshmir called uh, Token Economy that I really like that explores all the basics and it's always updated and forward. And then the most important part is open source and you can find it on GitHub. So I would start with Token Economy. And then one of our associates last year, or the year before, I think he published the most downloaded open source book on SNN on uh, smart contracts. Uh, his name is Sebastián Heredia Querro, and the book is open source, as I mentioned, and it's very complete and has an analysis of the different jurisdictions and the regulations on the matter up to the date of the publication uh, that I can pass to you and send to you if you want. So I would start with the with the global, and then I would go with the basics, and then go with the different parts of law that we, we might be interested in. I have there's this books, for example, and there are a couple of. Um, courses in different known universities that are also available that can be a little bit pricey but it's usually up to date and very available the university the technological university of amsterdam has a very good course on blockchain and um, antitrust for example that can be used the university of malta has a very good masters on blockchain uh, this book that i mentioned is very global and we're about to make the second edition of around 300 pages because the editorial said it almost sounded with a little bit too much to read. So there are options out there, but it's sometimes hard to get to them. Great. And on your Twitter profile, you're, um, you're involved in a few different projects um, from Surge Women to uh, mm -hmm. open source uh, wine winery. Is that correct? Oh, Open Vino. I'm passionate about that that uh, project. So Open Vino, you have two things. You have Open Vino as a decentralized protocol that enables wineries to tokenize the bottles of wine. And then you have Costa Flores Organic Vineyard. That's the first winery that actually did it. They're from the same founder. 
So what Open Vino does is that, as I said, they enable wineries to tokenize a bottle of wine, and they were the first ones in the world to actually do it. So the moment, from the very moment of harvest, the winery already kind of knows how many bottles of wine they're going to have uh, three years later after the whole process and have them separated and like bottled up. But you get to uh, sell the tokens representing each token, one bottle of, of uh, wine from the very moment of the harvesting. Therefore, you're pre-financing or the, the wineries are pre-financing themselves up to three years and they're optimizing their cash cycle. And it's fun because after the moment that they buy the token, then the token access to a secondary market and the trade and the value of the token itself depends on this secondary market, no longer of the winery. And after, and you can do whatever you want with your token, you can either resell it or you can wait the three years to actually have it and then burn it and drink the bottle of water. And you can just speculate on the value and then sell it when it goes up, because usually it goes up close to the date where you can actually get the bottle. But the interesting part as well of the project is that it started in 2017, 2018, where you can buy the token and whatnot. But after 2021, the second part of the project started where when you would finally have the bottle of wine and you would drink it, therefore the token would be, would be burnt. If you scan a QR code that's on the label and you do some KYC on who you are and some information on yourself and you say, I like the wine, I don't like the wine, you take a picture of it, you become token holder of parts of the share of the company that are inside of a trust or actually Fideicomiso in Argentina. So they have this um, mantra to call it like that, that you drink it, you own it. So it comes with the first part of it where the token represents a bottle of wine and then it gets burnt and if you do the process of it, you have a token that represents part of the business model and you become partly owner as well of the model. And uh, I find it's fascinating, the wine's delicious, of course, because I was working with them for a while. And the last thing that I did with them is that here in Lisbon, they got incubated by Cleros. I don't know if you've heard about it. I haven't. C can you explain that a bit? So Cleros is a very interesting protocol. It's um, decentralized arbitration or decentralized justice. So it's very good for dispute uh, resolution. So it uses jurors or arbitration itself, but on blockchain, right? And they're very, it's a very interesting project. One of the founders actually is Argentinian. That's why part of the reason that I know him. But they incubated Open Vino here in Portugal for the third stage of the project, or the third part of the project, because it's been growing, on biodigital self-certification for wineries as organic. So they use blockchain technolog and technologies to enable wineries to self-certify as organic. And later on, in case there's any doubt on this certification or this batch that they will be getting, they can use the Cletus protocol of uh, dispute resolution for the challenging of such batch. And with economic incentives, whoever is actually right gets the money of the bounty they put to make the challenge. So this kind of use of blockchain technology with Cletus as um, dispute resolution and with the idea of Mike, Mike Bravo is the founder of OpenVino on biodigital certification, you find a protocol that can be replicated starting with organic wines to carbon neutral, vegan, gluten-free and the different industries that can actually use them. And they're a lot of fun and the founder is also, he's a good friend. And if you go to the site of Costa Flores, I don't think it's open, I mean, I think it's Costa Flores, therefore the winery. You can see him on a 
bathtub filled with wine, drinking the wine in the Andes. So there's a lot of fun to the project itself. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, I I love that whole tokenization model, and I hope that as time goes on, more more businesses will utilize these sort of technologies. Um, in, in your mind, how do you see sort of traditional businesses? Uh, you know, there's there's lots of people thinking about it, but if you you know from from restaurants to you know small shop owners to whatever it is using these kind of technologies and also sort of how do you see everyday people maybe then they're not understanding the technical uh issues but just interacting with DAOs and sort of crypto more often well i think that if you think about it the crypto space is so wide that if you ask a business how they could interact to start putting blockchain technology into their business model that you wouldn't know where to start because if we talk about just accepting cryptocurrency as a method of a payment that's something that i think that's where we're all going for eventually especially if we're now talking about cbdc's in different countries coming out but then if it's blockchain technology something that can make or optimize a business model i think it's very particular and i think that tokenization so to speak goes for every kind of project or every kind of company Still, the different things that we use inside of the ecosystem might be of interesting of most, I don't know if all, but most of the models like playing or starting using NFTs as bonuses or, as I said, having uh, the possibility of doing payment or receiving payment with cryptocurrencies. I think that that's pretty much where we're going. It's a matter of analyzing specifically what's the core business that we're doing and if blockchain technology can enhance it or optimize it. And if it's not the case, just to be able to interact with it, to keep up with what's coming and what actually is already happening in different parts of the world. And there's lots of talk about CBDCs. Where do you think that's heading and especially in terms of relations of countries like El Salvador, which have um, legalized the, the use of, of Bitcoin as a, as a legal tender. And just over time, everything is heading in a certain sort of like cashless um, way. But how do you view that from a legal perspective? Well, from a legal perspective, we already know that the first country to launch their own CBDC is China. And they're already having it into force and there's different countries in the world that are analyzing whether to do it or not. One of them is the US with Joe Biden's requests on different reports on whatever has to do with, with the different parts of the crypto ecosystem. One of them CBDCs and trying to understand if there's something that's going to be convenient or not for the US to have. Same in Europe. So from then on, if every country is going to have their own CBDCs, I'm not Sure, but I do believe that most countries are going to adapt to blockchain technology sooner or later and adapt their own payment network to cryptocurrencies or some kind of cryptocurrency, most likely. Their own CBDCs, I'm not very sure, but they're going to adapt eventually. I believe that they're not really going to have an option, like the same with, with the, the internet when it happened. Great. And are, th are there any particular projects that you're working on right now? Well, right now, uh, yes, there are a few, there are a lot of fun. We are working with a specific project that has to do with tokenization of um, polo horses. 
and uh, the way that people can own a token that has that gives them ownership to the future sale of such token even if uh, of such horse even if it's a horse that's still on its mom's belly or it's a baby horse or like full-grown horse that's one of the projects that we're working on right now another one it's called uh, fun and it's a project that has to do with the tokenization of IT, IP rights of musicians. So it's a platform that would enable musicians to interact directly with their own fans and therefore their fans to invest and own a little bit part of what their um, their favorite artist is actually doing and make them part of specific events and access to specific merchandising and the like. That's two of the projects that we're currently working on. And we just closed a very interesting project called, I don't know if I can, no, I most likely cannot disclose the name, but I can share that has to do with DAOs, smart cities and real estate that could be quite interesting to develop. And similar as well to CityDAO, because I'm very I'm I'm familiar with with CityDAO. That's some of the projects that we're currently working on. Yeah, that's uh, quite the spectrum of projects keeping you busy. But it that's sounds really sleep. exciting. It is <laughs> yeah. very exciting. That's a good part of having a team. That's for sure. Yeah, and um, where where can people go to just stay up to date with everything that you're working on? Oh, well, we have our own webpage of tokenizeit.com. You can find it in English as well as in Spanish. And we're about, we have a lot of our own research and our own publications in different um, platforms. We write a lot and we publish a lot on Thomson Reuters, for example. But we're getting or letting our platform ready to have all of our publications and newsletter newsletter to have it uh, bi-weekly so you can mostly find it there and soon everything's going to be published so it's going to be easier to find all this information great well uh thanks for joining me today and it was really nice talking to you please thank you so much for having me and have me talk about something that i'm very passionate about and if anyone ha has a question or a doubt please don't hesitate to contact me and ryan whenever you would like to have me again or have a conversation on the matter please just Ring the door. Thanks. Bye.